That is where I would take you this evening. As I read and then preach from God's Word. Romans 11. I'll not read as large a portion as indicated in the bulletin. Just verses 17 to 22. Begin reading at verse 17. Romans chapter 11. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are... Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their belief. Fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For God did not spare the natural branches Neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. With God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. This is the word of God. Amen. We have been studying and I hope say with me, reveling in the big themes of Romans chapter 11. Paul reveals things here, and though they're found in other parts of the Scripture, this is a unique place for opening them up in the way that it's done. He is concerned to tell us that it's even better than we might have hoped, that though God has for a time rejected His people Israel, That is not to be permanent and that there will come a time when he will show himself faithful to the very last. And that time of hardening of their hearts will end. And this will be to the glory of his name. Indeed, the righteousness of God will be displayed in a glorious way when that takes place. Now, these things have been before our eyes and we've taken time to consider them. But tonight, you need to see together that running through these exalted themes, these prophetic words, are also pastoral concerns. The Apostle is writing to a church. He's writing to a church that he has shown pastoral concern for from the beginning. And embedded in this rather involved argument case that he's making for the restoration of Israel are concerns that he has for this particular church. Remember the church that he's writing to in Rome is a church that includes both Jews and Gentiles. He's alternated between speaking to Jews, speaking to Gentiles throughout the book of Romans. And as we continue in Romans, beginning in chapter 12 and going to the end where he then uh, makes most of his practical pastoral council, we'll see him taking up issues where Jews and Gentiles, 
would have difficulty living together in one, in one congregation. Here we're going to see he is in particular concerned to warn Gentile Christians against a certain sin in light of what he's saying about the Jews. We're going to see three things this evening. First, I don't know how else to put it, a warning against anti-Semitism. Secondly, a warning against spiritual pride. And thirdly, a call to holy fear. When I speak of, first of all, a warning against anti-Semitism, I could do no better than to point you immediately to verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Now, the Apostle has a primary reason for telling us about or explaining to us the present state of Israel and its future state. The primary reason he has for explaining their present and their future state is to vindicate God's righteousness. That's been clear throughout. There's a secondary reason. And that secondary reason is that he wants to prevent Gentile Christians in Rome and in other places where this letter will be read from a kind of reverse discrimination against the Jews. You can imagine how that would take place. For centuries, the Jews had shown a certain condescension towards Gentiles. Paul had rebuked them for that back in chapter 2, as you may remember. But now suddenly, in a relatively short period of time, the Jews have been set aside in favor of the Gentiles by God himself. And now the people of God are composed primarily... Of Gentiles. And Paul knows there is the danger of a pendulum swing in the opposite direction under these new circumstances. That same attitude of superiority, of arrogance that Jews once had for Gentiles could now be true of Gentiles towards their Jewish brothers and to George, towards Jews in general. Verse 18, he's describing the branches, and he's using the illustration we've already seen something of. It's an illustration that's taken from the Old Testament. If you will, Israel is like a tree, like an olive tree. The prophets had likened Israel to such a tree. The root bear the patriarchs, and that tree is growing. And Paul has used this language of the Jews being cut off from the tree and the Gentiles being grafted in. And now in verse 18, he envisions those branches laying there on the ground. Cut off the tree by God. And he envisions other branches in the tree, the Gentiles. And still in that picture, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Speaking of those, the Jews who've been cut off. He's speaking against the very thing that sadly enough, has marked the history of the church. It's actually really quite uncanny and highly disturbing to think of how much of church history contains the very attitude towards the Jews that Paul forbids arrogance towards the branches. I'll just give you something of that by way of survey. It was early in the history of the church, that Jews came to be systematically discriminated against 
in various Christian nations. It became something of an established doctrine that these were a people under the curse of God, and therefore the people of God, the Gentiles largely, the Christian church, could take the liberty to be the means by which God brought further judgment upon the Jews. This took place in various ways of prejudice and discrimination for many years. A church council actually lent its authority to this, along with other theological matters, other matters pertaining to the well-being of the church. The Fourth Lateran Council stipulated that in Christian nations, Jews must wear certain emblems to identify themselves as Jews, to be set apart from the rest of the people and so discriminated against. But it didn't end there. In the medieval period, Jews were subjected again and again to persecution by those acting in the name of Christ, noting that Jews were hardworking and oftentimes came to have significant resources. Kings and princes would exorbitantly tax the Jews, and this was encouraged by popes like Innocent III. They were at times deprived of their homes and lands, and worst of all, They became the victims of violence by mobs, again acting in the name of Christ. Rumors would circulate that Jews were sacrificing Christian children in their worship, and incensed mobs would burn synagogues and kill Jews. Tens of thousands of Jews died at the hands of such violence during the medieval period, often by those claiming the name of Christ. Do you know that the plague, known as the Black Death, that swept through Europe, was blamed on the Jews and gave rise to more such acts of violence? The Crusades, you think of, perhaps, as primarily directed against Muslims. But several of the Crusades also took out their wrath upon Jews, where they encountered them. And nation after nation, in Europe especially, under supposedly Christian principles that the Jews must suffer for the rejection of the Messiah, banished them from their lands. Edward I banished Jews from England in 1290. It was not until the days of Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century that Jews were welcomed back into England. You think of the Spanish Inquisition as that arm of the Roman Catholic Church against Protestants, not originally. Originally it had more to do with Jews. Jews were frequently given the choice of baptism or death by the Church of Jesus Christ. You're tempted to think that was old and positively medieval. Even our own hero, Martin Luther, embarrasses us greatly in this point. Late in his life, he published a couple of books which gave sanction to the treatment of Jews, much of the treatment that I've just spoken of. And so, What we hear the Apostle saying, do not be arrogant towards the branches, is precisely the kind of attitude and actions the church has been guilty of. So much so that a name has been coined, anti-Semitism. The Semites, of course, they are descendants of Shem, the oldest son of Noah, through whom the line of Messiah was numbered, was counted. Brothers and sisters, this may well be, to those of us who believe what Paul says about Romans 11, that the Jews will one day be provoked to jealousy 
by the blessings of the gospel enjoyed by Gentiles and be brought into that tree once again, this may well be the greatest challenge to our faith in what Paul says, that it is hard to imagine the Jewish people overcoming the prejudice of many centuries against the church or the arrogance, to put it mildly, that has been shown towards them. I'm not giving you the whole story. There are exceptions happily. Men like Bernard of Clairvaux or Gregory the Great, Pope, in the medieval period who spoke against such treatment. The apostle is calling for a certain racial attitude. This sounds political the way I'm speaking. I'm sorry. This is the scripture's teaching. We are to have a certain attitude towards the Jews. Paul is not calling for, in our modern day, an uncritically pro-Israel posture in politics. He's not requiring some kind of affirmative action towards the Jews. He's certainly not calling on us to minimize the seriousness of their apostasy to this very day. But he is calling us to something that is the opposite of what he says in verse 18. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. Compassion. They're under the hardening hand of God. Love. For those who are still beloved by God for their father's sake. Gratitude to them because we've been grafted into their roots. Hope for them as those who will one day be restored to God's favor. And yes, prayer for them. You do those five things. You will be part of a church that is successful in clearing itself of the stain of anti-Semitism. We have a warning against anti-Semitism in our text. And for us, that may seem rather abstract. In the church in Rome, it was an everyday, at least every week, reality as Jews and Gentiles sat together at the table of communion. second thing we see in our text that Paul has in his mind as a pastor to express his concern is related. And that is this. It's a warning against spiritual pride. As he continues, I'll just point you to verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but stand in awe. The apostle's concern is not only for the health of Jew-Gentile relations in the congregations and communities where the gospel has come, but he also sees in the potential for arrogance towards the Jews a spiritual problem that's antithetical to the gospel. It's this impulse to explain in somehow that references oneself God's favor, to see in oneself explanation enough for why God has chosen oneself. This is the question that Paul poses in verse 19. That's where he's going with it. You will say, but branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And when he anticipates that question, the apostle recognizes that's a fair summary of what he's been teaching. He's taught that the rejection by God of the Jews is the means of God's appointment to share the gospel with the Gentiles. God has pruned Jews out in order to graft Gentiles in. So he says to this question that he envisions, true enough, true enough. But he hears something in that question. 
that is of great concern. Underlying that question is a certain assumption about why we Gentiles have been included in the grace of God. Is it because, Paul poses the question implicitly, is it because we're a more desirable kind of person and others are less desirable? A thousand times no. That would be to partake of the same spiritual pride that brought Israel down, of all things. Now, I'm not sure along what lines the Gentiles of Paul's day might have thought in seeing in themselves some reason for God's choice of them over the Jews. Perhaps the Gentiles in Paul's day would view themselves as, in general, more sophisticated people, heirs of the Greek heritage. Perhaps they would identify themselves with that which made Rome great as an empire. Perhaps they would assume that if they had been given the opportunity to receive the Messiah as the Jews, they would have received him and embraced him as their king. I'm not sure which, if any of those, the lines along which they congratulate themselves for having something that drew God's attention form the basis of his favor. The apostle's warning against it. He says, you can make whatever list you want. You can make it as long as you want. There's only one thing that belongs on the list. There's only one thing. Do you see it? Verse 20. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. That is what causes you to differ that you have believed, they have not. This is the one thing on the list, faith. That's the sole reason the Jews were cut off. They did not believe. That's the sole reason you Gentiles have been grafted and you have believed. That's the theme of the whole letter, isn't it? That God's righteousness displayed from faith for faith. Back from chapter 1. And that's why Paul says you stand fast through faith. And maybe you're wondering, okay, but... That's still a list. That's a list of one. And could a person come to take pride in that one thing? That he had faith? Could he take pride in the fact that he, unlike others, actually had the wisdom, had the humility to believe? Well, one could. Many have. But dear people, they're not talking about the same faith that Paul lays out in the book of Romans. Paul speaks of faith and he has his back against all that he said already to this point in Romans about faith. It's the means by which the righteousness of God comes to us and saves us. That faith by which we receive that is itself a gift. He's taught us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. It's a means by which unrighteous, which is to say unworthy men, are deemed righteous, counted righteous by God. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And consequently, Paul has said it more than once. To acknowledge yourself as a believer, as having put your faith in Christ, is to remove all ground of boasting. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. 
By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. So, with that in mind, you see how even more striking it is when the Apostle uses that expression, you stand fast through faith. That's really a striking expression. We've come to understand faith to be a sense of helplessness, a sense of unworthiness, a sense of surrender to God, a sense of clinging to His Son for salvation. And Paul says, you stand, but it's through faith. It's almost a contradiction. You don't stand by grit, by resolve, by determination. You stand by clinging. You stand by leaning. You stand by relying, by putting your confidence in God's provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is that unflattering mark of faith. And so Paul calls them against anti-Semitism, against spiritual pride, and both of those things in order to do a third thing, and that is to call them, these Gentile Christians in particular he's now speaking to, he calls them to holy fear. Now what does he want them to be afraid of? He says, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. What does he want them to be in awe of? What does he want them to be fearful of? Well, it's quite simply their suffering, the same fate as the Jews. Look at verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Gentile Christians, far, far from being arrogant towards the Jews because they've been cut off, you be afraid. You stand in awe. Because if God didn't spare them, implied, understood, when they didn't believe. He will not spare you, implied, understood, when you do not believe. This is the same apostle who has affirmed already in this book the permanence of God's saving work in us. He has said things like, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. He said things like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and yet now, here, he's warning the spiritually presumptuous of the possibility of being cut off. Note then, verse 22, the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who've fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. It's not unlike what he had said earlier in Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> He said there, if you live according to the flesh, he's writing to Christians, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
This is a common refrain in Paul's writings. We'll read from another portion of another letter in a few minutes. Now, different theological traditions have addressed these seeming statements in tension different ways. And this is where I've underscored to you in the past where the Reformed tradition offers such a service to the church. To speak this way of being cut off and grafted in, that's covenantal language in the Bible. And there is in the Scriptures this language of those who are in possession of certain blessings, certain graces, and in possession of a kind of faith. The Gospel accounts are full of this account. Who are nonetheless those who fall short of salvation. It's not possible to experience the death and resurrection of Christ unto salvation only to die again in your sins. That's clear from the Scripture. But it is possible to taste the heavenly gifts and share in them by virtue of your standing within the community of God, the covenant, only to turn away and be cut off as a breaker of the covenant. We could go on at this point. The doctrine of covenant seems abstract to you. Let me tell you, it's this practical. It's this real. Covenant grace is not necessarily the same as saving grace in the life of every covenant member. But however these things are explained, this much is clear from what the Apostle says. Listen to me. The prospect of falling should lead to a healthy, holy fear by those who stand through faith. Verse 20, Paul says, So do not become proud, but stand in awe. Awe of what? Fear of what? Well, he tells us, He says, there are two things you need to remember about God. He is a kind God. And He is a God of severity. The accent is on the severity in this passage. Paul reminds us there are two broad themes in the Bible The prophets major on these themes, but they're found throughout the Scriptures. God is a God of goodness, as some of you have it, or kindness. He's a God of severity, of wrath, judgment upon sin. And it is not for the Christian, having become a Christian and put his faith in Christ, to leave one of those attributes of God aside as if it no longer was relevant for him or her. Paul says, you consider, you note both the kindness and severity of God. It's by means of this kind of holy, fearful mindfulness of the severity of God, many have pointed out, that God actually causes His saints to persevere. It's by their being mindful of this. Professor Murray speaks this way, Christian piety is constantly aware of the perils to faith, of the danger of coming short, 
and is characterized by the fear and trembling which the high demands of God's calling constrain. Brothers and sisters, these two themes of the Scriptures, the goodness and the severity of God, somehow, temperamentally, we as Christians will often gravitate towards one or the other. I think probably, judging from Paul's words here and other places, Christians are most likely to gravitate towards the goodness of God, the kindness of God, and overlook His severity. But it also occurs contrary-wise, perhaps in our tradition, that has such a high view of the holiness of God, it can also become a preoccupying concern that God is a severe God. There's a reason why the book of the covenant, the scriptures, presents both so clearly, so powerfully. We read this morning from Numbers chapter 15. God is constantly reminding His people as He gives them, their, gives them the law that He's doing this as the one who's brought them out of the land of Egypt. And His law itself is an expression of His kindness to them. Then you have punctuated throughout these examples the high-handed sin of the man who gathers sticks on the Sabbath. And God Himself speaks to Moses His death sentence why, not why did that happen? Now, why has God preserved that account for us? Why in the next chapter will He have recorded for us the death of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? It's not just so that those people outside the church will remember that He is a God both kind and severe. That His own people will. They will serve Him out of the love kindled by His kindness and they will serve Him out of the fear kindled by His severity. Do these things not sit well in your hearts? They do, in fact, sit well. They sit perfectly well in the heart of one who knows God as He has revealed Himself to be. I rather think that the way we conclude every Lord's Day is a perfect opportunity to have both of these attributes of God summoned before our eyes. It's almost as if God intended that way. The severity of God. You see it in the splattered blood of your Savior. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate, mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. It's right for us to tremble we partake of the bread and the wine. It's to tremble because you bear in your hands the emblems of the severity of God. This is what we confess all sin deserves. 
And you go from the table rightly with fear. Lest anything of that, any taste of that wrath displayed on the cross would ever come upon you. But I rather think the accent, the final note, that our Lord intended in giving us the meal of communion is on His kindness. He does say, after all, this is my body, which is for you. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God, for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on Him their hope have built. You're not a presumptuous sinner. If you're not a Christian in name, but one whose life shows high-handed sin, then when you come to the table, that which should be foremost, yes, with fear, is also that sense of certainty. There is one who's borne the severity of God on your behalf. And the Lord Jesus has drunk the whole cup. He has not saved any for you. It's gone. And it will forever be gone as you stand through